Chapter 7 of Operation Outer Space by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Operation Outer Space. Chapter 7. In the United States, some two hundred odd light years away, it happened to be Tuesday. On this Tuesday, the broadcast from the stars was sponsored by Harvey's, the national men's clothing chain. Harvey's advertising department preferred discussion-type shows, because differences of opinion in the shows proper led so neatly into their tagline, You can disagree about anything but the quality of a Harvey suit. That's superb. Therefore, the broadcast after the landing of the ship on the volcanic planet was partly commercial, and partly pictures and reports from the Spaceways Expedition, and partly queries and comments by big-name individuals on Earth. Inevitably, there was Dabney. And Dabney was neurotic. He did his best to make a shambles of everything. The show started promptly enough at the beginning. There was a two-minute film strip of business-suited puppets marching row on row, indicating the enormous popularity of Harvey's suits. Then, a fast-minute hillbilly puppet show, about two feuding mountaineers who found they couldn't possibly retain their enmity when they found themselves in agreement on the quality of Harvey suits. That's superb! The commercial ended with a choral dance of madly enthusiastic miniature figures, dancing while they lustily sang the theme song, You can disagree, yes siree, you can disagree, about anything, indeed everything, you and me. But you can't, no, you can't disagree about the strictly super-extra-super quality of a Harvey suit. That's superb! And thereupon the television audience of several continents saw the faded-in image of mankind's first starship, poised upon its landing fins among trees more splendid than even television shows had ever pictured before. The camera panned slowly and showed such open spaces as very few humans had ever seen unencumbered by buildings, and mountains of a grandeur difficult for most people to believe in. The scene cut to the spaceship's control room, and Al, the pilot, acted briskly as the leader of an exploration party just returned, though he actually hadn't left the ship. He introduced Jameson, wearing improvised leggings and other trappings appropriate to an explorer in wilderness. Jameson began to extrapolate from his observations out the control room port, adding film clips for authority. Smoothly and hypnotically, he pictured the valley as the ship descended the last few thousand feet, and told of the human colony to be founded in this vast and hospitable area just explored. Mountainside hotels for star tourists would look down upon a scene of tranquility and cozy spaciousness. This would be the first human outpost in the stars. In the other valleys of this magnificent world there would be pasture-lands, and humankind would again begin to regard meat as a normal and not extravagant part of its diet, on this planet certainly. There were minerals beyond doubt, and water-power. The estimate was that at least the equivalent of the Asian continent had been made available for human occupation and this splendid addition to the resources of humanity. The second commercial cut Jameson off. Naturally. The sponsor was paying for time. So for Jameson was substituted the other fiction about the poor young man who found himself envied by the board of directors of the firm which employed him. 
his impeccable attire, caused him to be promoted to vice-president without any question of whether or not he could fill the job. Because, of course, he wore a Harvey suit. Alicia Keith showed herself on the screen and gave the woman's viewpoint, as written about by Bell. She talked pleasantly about how it felt to move about on a planet never before trodden by human beings. She was interrupted by the pictured face of the lady editor of Joint Network's feminine programs, who asked sweetly, "'Tell me, Alicia, what do you think the attainment of the stars will mean to the average American housewife in the immediate future, right now?' Then Dabney came on. His appearance was fitted into the sequence from Lunar City, and his gestures were extravagant as anybody's gestures will be, where their hands and arms weighed so small a fraction of earth normal. I wish, said Dabney impressively, to congratulate the men who have so swiftly adapted my discovery of faster-than-light travel to practical use. I am overwhelmed at having been able to achieve a scientific triumph which, in time, will mean that mankind's future stretches endlessly and splendidly into the future. Here there was canned applause. Dabney held up his hand for attention. He thought, visibly. But, he said urgently, I admit that I am disturbed by the precipitancy of the action that has been taken. I feel as if I were like some powerful genie giving gifts which the recipients may use without thought. More canned applause, inserted because he had given instructions for it whenever he paused. The communicator operator at Lunar City took pleasure in following instructions exactly. Dabney held up his hand again. Again he performed feats of meditation in plain view. At the moment, he said anxiously, as the author of this truly magnificent achievement, I have to use the same intellect which produced it to examine the possibility of its ill-advised use. May not explorers, who took off without my having examined their plans and precautions, May not over-hasty users of my gift to humanity do harm? May they not find bacteria the human body cannot resist? May they not bring back plagues and epidemics? Have they prepared themselves to use my discovery only for the benefit of mankind? Or have they been precipitous? I shall have to apply myself to the devising of methods by which my discovery— made so that humanity might attain hitherto undreamed-of heights, I shall have to devise means by which it will be truly a blessing to mankind." Dabney, of course, had tasted the limelight. All the world considered him the greatest scientist of all time, except, of course, the people who knew something about science. But the first actual voyagers in space had become immediately greater heroes than himself. It was intolerable to Dabney to be restricted to taking bows on programs in which they starred. So he wrote a star part for himself. The bearded biologist who followed him was to have lectured on the pictures and reports forwarded to him beforehand. But he could not ignore so promising a lead to show how much he knew. So he lectured authoritatively on the danger of extraterrestrial disease-producing organisms being introduced on Earth. He painted a lurid picture, quoting from the history of pre-sanitation epidemics. He wound up 
with a specific prophecy of something like the Black Death of the Middle Ages as lurking among the stars to decimate humanity. He was a victim of the well-known authority trauma which affects some people on television when they think millions of other people are listening to them. They depart madly from their scripts to try to say something startling enough to justify all the attention they're getting. The broadcast ended with a sentimental live commercial, in which a dazzlingly beautiful girl melted into the arms of the worthy young man she had previously scorned. She found him irresistible when she noticed that he was wearing a suit she instantly knew by its quality could only come from Harvey's. On the planet of glaciers and volcanoes, Holden fumed. "'Damn it!' he protested. "'They talk like we're lepers. Like, if we ever come back, we'll be carriers of some monstrous disease that will wipe out the human race. As a matter of fact, we're no more likely to catch an extraterrestrial disease than to catch wry-neck from sick chickens.' "'That broadcast nothing to worry about,' said Cochrane. "'But it is.' insisted Holden. Dabney and that fool biologist presented space travel as a reason for panic. They could have every human being on Earth scared to death we'll bring back germs and everybody'll die of the croup. Cochrane grinned. Good publicity, if we needed it. Actually, they've boosted the show. From now on, every presentation has a dramatic kick it didn't have before. Now everybody will feel suspense waiting for the next show. Has Jameson got the purple death on planet of smoky hilltops? Will darling Alicia Keith break out in green spots next time we watch her on the air? Has Captain Al of the star-roving spaceship breathed in spores of the swelling fungus? Are the space travelers doomed? Tune in on our next broadcast and see. My dear Bill, if we weren't signed up for sponsors' fees, I'd raise our prices after this trick. Holden looked unconvinced. Cochrane said kindly, "'Don't worry. I could turn off the panic tomorrow. As much panic as there is. Kirsten, Caston, Hopkins, and Fallow had a proposal they set great store by. They wanted to parcel out a big contest for a name for mankind's second planet. They had regional sponsors lined up. It would have been worldwide. Advertisers were drooling over the prospect of people proposing names for this planet on box-tops.' They were planning five million prize money, and who'd be afraid of us then? But I turned it down, because we haven't got a helicopter. We couldn't stage enough different shows from this planet to keep it going the minimum six weeks for a contest like that. Instead, we're taking off in a couple of hours. Jones agrees. The astronomers back home have picked out another Sol-type star that ought to have planets. We're going to run over and see what pickings we can find. Not too far, only twenty-some light-years. He regarded Holden quizzically to see how the last phases affected him. Holden didn't notice it. A contest. It doesn't make sense. I know it isn't sense, said Cochrane. It's public relations. I'm beginning to get my self-respect back. I see now that a space exploration job is only as good as its public relations man. He went zestfully to find Babs to tell her to leave the communicator set and let queries go unanswered as a matter of simple business policy. The sling which swung out of the airlock now became busy. They had landed on this planet, and they were going to leave it. 
and there had been a minimum of actual contact with its soil. So Jameson took his leggings, put on for the show, and he and Bell went down to the ground and foraged through the woods. Jameson carried one of Johnny Sims's guns, which he regarded with acute suspicion, and Bell carried cameras. They photographed trees and underbrush, first as atmosphere and then with fanatic attention to leaves and fruits or flowers. Bell got pictures of one of the small furry bipeds that Cochrane and Holden had spied when Babs was with them. He got a picture of what he believed to be a spider web. It was thicker and heavier and huger than any web on earth, and rather fearfully looked for the monster that could string thirty-foot cables as thick as fishing twine. Then he found that it was not a snare at all. It was a construction at whose center something undiscoverable had made a nest with eggs in it. Some creature had made an unapproachable home for itself where its young would not be assailed by predators. Al, the pilot, went out of the lock and descended to the ground and went as far as the edge of the ash ring. But he did not go any further. He wandered about unhappily, pretending that he did not want to go into the woods. He tried to appear quite content to view half-burnt trees for his experience of the first extraterrestrial planet on which men had landed. He did kick up some pebbles, water rounded, and one of them had flecks of what looked like gold in it. Al regarded it excitedly, and then thought of freight rates. But he did scrabble for more. Presently he had a pocketful of small stones, which would be regarded with rapture by his nieces and nephews because they had come from the stars. Actually, they were quite commonplace minerals. The flecks of what looked like gold were only iron pyrates. Jones did not leave the ship. He was puttering. Nor Alicia. Holden urged her to take a walk, and she said quietly, Johnny's out with a gun. He's hunting. I don't like to be with Johnny when he may be disappointed. She smiled, and Holden sourly went away. There had been no particular consequences of Johnny Sim's inability to remember what was right and what was wrong. But Holden felt like a normal man about men whose wives look patient. Even psychiatrists feel that it is somehow disreputable to ill-treat a woman who doesn't fight back. This attitude is instinctive. It is what is called the fine, deep-rooted impulse to chivalry, which was one of the prides of modern culture. Holden settled dourly down at the communicator to get an outgoing call to Earth, when there were some hundreds of incoming calls backed up. By sheer obstinacy and bad manners he made it. He got a connection to a hospital where he was known, and he talked to its bacteriologist. The bacteriologist was competent, but not yet famous. With Holden giving honest guesses at the color of the sunlight and its probable ultraviolet content, and with careful estimates of the exactness with which burning vegetation here smelled like earth plants, they arrived at imprecise but common-sense conclusions. Of the hundreds of thousands of possible organic compounds, only so many actually took part in the life processes of creatures on earth, yet there were hundreds of thousands of species prepared to make use of anything usable. If the sunlight and temperature of the two worlds were similar, it was somewhat more than likely that the same chemical compounds would be used by living things on both. So that there could be microorganisms on the new planet which could be harmful. 
but on the other hand, either they would be familiar in the toxins they produced, and human bodies could resist them, or else they would be new compounds, to which humans would react allergically. Basically, then, if anybody on the ship developed hives, they had reason to be frightened. But so long as nobody sneezed or broke out in welts, their lives were probably safe. This comforting conclusion took a long time to work out. Meanwhile, Babs and Cochrane had swung down to the ground and went hiking. Cochrane was armed as before, though he had no experience as a marksman. In television shows he had directed the firing of weapons shooting blank charges, cut to a minimum so they wouldn't blast the mics. He knew what motions to go through, but nothing else. They did not explore in the same direction as their first excursion. The ship was to take off presently, as soon as this planet had turned enough, for the spaceship's nose to point nearly in the direction of their next target. They had two hours for exploration. They came upon something which lay still across their path, like a great serpent. Cochrane looked at it startledly. Then he saw that the round, glistening, seeming snake was fastened to the ground by rootlets. It was a plant which grew like a creeper, absorbing nourishment from a vast root area. Somewhere, no doubt, it would rear upward and spread out leaves to absorb the sun's light. It used, in a way, the principle of those lateral wells, which in dry climates gather water too scarce to collect in merely vertical holes. They went on and on, admiring and amazed. All about them were curiosities of adaptation, freaks of ecological adjustment, marvels of symbiotic cooperation. A botanist would have swooned with joy at the material all about. A biologist would have babbled happily. Babs and Cochrane admired without information. They walked interestedly, but unawed among the unparalleled. Back on Earth, they knew as much as most people about nature, practically nothing at all. Babs had never seen any wild plants before. She was fascinated by what she saw and exclaimed at everything but she did not realize a fraction of the marvels on which her eyes rested. On the whole, she survived. "'It's a pity we haven't got a helicopter,' Cochrane said regretfully. "'If we could fly around from place to place and send back pictures—' "'We can't do it in the ship. It would burn more fuel than we've got.' Babs wrinkled her forehead. Dr. Holden's badly worried because we can't make as alluring a picture as he'd like. Cochrane halted to watch something which was flat like a disk of gray-green flesh, and which moved slowly out of their path with disquieting, writhing motions. It vanished, and he said, Yes, Bill's an honest man, even if he is a psychiatrist. He wants desperately to do something for the poor devils back home, were so pitifully frustrated. There are tens of millions of men who can't hope for anything better than to keep the food and shelter supply intact for themselves and their families. They can't even pretend to hope for more than that. There isn't more than so much to go around. But Bill wants to give them hope. He figures that without hope the world will turn madhouse in another generation. It will." You're trying to do something about that, said Babs quickly. Don't you think you're offering hope to everybody back on Earth? 
No, snapped Cochran. I'm not trying anything so abstract as furnishing hope to a frustrated humanity. Nobody can supply an abstraction. Nobody can accomplish an abstraction. Everything that's actually done is specific and real. Maybe you can find abstract qualities in it after it's done, but I'm a practical man. I'm not trying to produce an improved psychological climate suitable for debilitated psychos. I'm trying to get a job done. I've wondered, admitted Babs, what the job is. Cochran grimaced. You wouldn't believe it, Babs. There was an odd quivering underfoot. Trees shook. There was no other peculiarity anywhere. Nothing fell. No rocks rolled. In a valley among volcanoes, where the smoke from no less than six cones could be seen at once, tumblers would not do damage. What damage mild shakings could do would have been done centuries since. Babs said uneasily, That feels queer, doesn't it? Cochran nodded. But just as he and Babs had never been conditioned to be afraid of animals, they had been conditioned by air travel at home and space travel to here against alarm at movements of their surroundings. Temblers were evidently frequent at this place. Trees were anchored against them, as against prevailing winds in exposed situations. Landslides did not remain poised to fall. Really unstable slopes had been shaken down long ago. I wish we had a helicopter, Cochrane repeated. The look of the mountains as we came down, with glaciers between the smoking cones, that was good show stuff. We could have held interest here until we worked that naming contest. We could use the extra capital that would bring in. As it is, we've got to move on with practically nothing accomplished. The trouble is that I didn't think we would succeed as we have. Heaven knows I could have gotten helicopters. He helped her up a small steep incline where rock protruded from a hillside. The ground trembled again. Not alarmingly, but Bab's hold of his hand tightened a little. They continued to climb. They came out atop a small bare prominence which rose above the forest. Here they could see over the treetops in a truly extensive view. The mountains all about were clearly visible. Some were ten and some twenty miles away. Some, still farther, were barely visible in the thin haze of distance. But there was a thick pall of smoke hovering about one of the farthest. It was mushroom-shaped. At one time in human history it would have seemed typically a volcanic cloud. To Cochrane and Babs it was typically the cloud of an atomic explosion. The ground shook sharply underfoot. Bab staggered. Flying things rose from the forest in swarms. They hovered and darted and flapped above the treetops. Temblers did not alarm the creatures of the valley. But ground shocks like this last were another matter. A great tree, rearing above its fellows, toppled slowly. With ripping, tearing noises, it bent sedately toward the smoking, far-away mountain. It crashed thunderously down upon smaller trees. There were other rending noises. The flying things rose higher, seeming agitated. Echoes sounded in the ears of the two atop the hill. There was another sharp shock. Babs gave a little, inarticulate cry. She pointed. There was much smoke in the distance. 
over the far-away cone, which was indistinct in the smoke of its own making, over the edge of the distant mountains a glare appeared. It was a thin line of bright white light. With infinite deliberation it began to creep down the slanting, blessedly remote mountainside. The ground seemed to shift abruptly, and then shift back. Across and down the valley, five miles away, a portion of the stony wall detached itself and slid downward in seeming slow motion. Two more great trees made ripping sounds. One crashed. There was an enormous darkness above one part of the sky. Its underside glowed from fires, as of hell, in the crater beneath it. There were sparkings above the mountaintop. Very oddly indeed, the sky overhead was peacefully blue. But at the horizon a sheet of fire rolled down mile-long slopes. It seemed to move with infinite deliberation, but to move visibly at such a distance it must have been traveling like an express train. It must have been unthinkably hot, glaring white molten stone, thin as water, pouring downward in a flood of fire. There was no longer a sensation of the ground trembling underfoot. Now the noticeable sensation was when the ground was still. Temblers were practically continuous. There were distinct sharp impacts, as of violent blows nearby. Bab stared, fascinated. She glanced up at Cochrane. Her skin was white. There were beads of sweat on his forehead. "'We're safe here, aren't we?' she asked, scared. "'I think so. But I'm not going to take you through falling trees while this is going on. There's another tree down. I'm worrying about the ship. If it topples—' She looked at the nose of the spaceship gleaming silver metal, rising from the trees about the landing spot it had burned clear. A third of its length was visible. "'If it topples,' said Cochrane, "'we'll never be able to take off. It has to point up to lift.' Babs looked from the ship to him and back again. Then her eyes went fearfully to the remote mountain. Rumblings came from it now. They were not loud they were hardly more than dull growlings, at the lower limit of audible pitch. They were like faint and distant thunder. There were flashings like lightning in the cloud which now enveloped the mountain's top. Cochrane made an indescribable small sound. He stared at the ship. As explosion waves passed over the ground, a faint, unanimous movement of the treetops became visible. It seemed to Cochrane that the spaceship wavered, as if about to fall from its upright position. It was not designed to stand such violence as a fall would imply. Its hull would be dented or rent. It was at least possible that its fuel store would detonate. But even if its fall were checked by still-standing trees about it, it could never take off again. The eight humans of its company could never juggle it back to a vertical position. Rocket thrust would merely push it in the direction its nose pointed. Toppled, its rocket thrust would merely shove it blindly over stones and trees, and to destruction. The ship swayed again, visibly. Ground waves made its weight have the effect of blows. Part of its foundation rested on almost visible stone, only feet below the ground level. But one of the landing fins rested on humus. As the shocks passed, that fin foot sank into the soft soil. 
the spaceship leaned perceptibly. Flying creatures darted back and forth above the treetops. Miles away, insensate violence reigned. Clouds of dust and smoke shot miles into the air, and half a mountainside glowed white-hot, and there was the sound of long-continued thunder, and the ground shook and quivered. There were movements nearby. A creature with yellow fur and the shape of a bear with huge ears came padding out of the forest. It swarmed up the bare stone of the hill on which Babs and Cochrane stood. It ignored them. Halfway up the unwooded part of the hill it stopped and made plaintive, high-pitched noises. Other creatures came. Many had come while the man and girl were too absorbed to notice. Now two more of the large animals came out into the open and climbed the hill. Babs said shakily, "'Do you think they'll—do you think—' There was a nearer roaring. The spaceship leaned and leaned. Cochrane's lips tensed. The spaceship's rockets bellowed, and a storm of hurtling smoke flashed up around it. It lifted, staggering as its steering jets tried frantically to swing its lower parts underneath its mass. It lurched violently, and the rockets flamed terribly. It lifted again. Its tail was higher than the trees, but it did not point straight up. It surged horribly across the top of the forest, leaving a vast flash of flaming vegetation behind it. Then it steadied, and aimed skyward, and climbed. Then it was not. Obviously the Dabney Field booster had been flashed on to get the ship out to space. The ship had vanished into emptiness. The Dabney Field had flicked it some hundred and seventy-odd light-years from Earth's moon in the flicker of a heartbeat. It might have gone that far again. Whoever was in it had had no choice but to take off, and no way to take off without suicidal use of fuel in any other way. Cochrane looked at where the ship had vanished. Seconds passed. There came the thunderclap of air closing the vacuum the ship's disappearance had left. There were squealings behind the pair on the hilltop. Eight of the huge yellow beasts were out in the open now. Tiny, furry biped animals waddled desperately to get out of their way. Smaller creatures scuttled here and there. A sinuous creature with fur, but no apparent legs, writhed its way upward. But all the creatures were frightened. They observed an absolute truce, under the overmastering greater fear of nature. Far away the volcano on the skyline boomed and flashed, and emitted monstrous clouds of smoke. The shining, incandescent lava on its flanks glared across the glaciers. Babs gasped suddenly. She realized the situation in which she and Cochrane had been left. Shivering, she pressed close to him as the distant black smoke-cloud spread toward the center of the sky. End of chapter 7